Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from an educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to share that both this podcast and the community I started in 2021 called The Iconic Journey in CRE is now part of a new nonprofit organization with that same name. The new company will offer opportunities for sponsorship to grow the community both in membership and in programs. It also allows you as listeners to show your appreciation for this podcast, which has delivered episodes twice monthly since August 2019 with a charitable contribution. Transitioning the community and podcast into the nonprofit organization is underway. The community, which is open to commercial real estate professionals between the ages of 25 and 40 years old, is currently up to 65 members and growing. If you would like to learn more about either joining the community or contributing to the podcast, please reach out directly to me at john at coenterprises, C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Separately, my private company, Coenterprises, now will focus only on advisory work for early stage real estate firms and career counseling. If you have interest in learning more about its services, please review my website at coenterprises.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. My guest for today's show is Chris Clementi. Chris is the founder of Comstock Holdings and Comstock Partners, two uh, companies that he started and managed together. Uh, Comstock Holdings is a public company that services the assets of Comstock Holdings, which is a private partnership that he formed with Dwight Shar, who was the founder of NVR and Ryan Holmes. So Chris was born in the the DC area, went to school up at Wisconsin and then George Mason and was an entrepreneur from high school time, moving on into college and then decided not to finish college, but become a home builder in the 1980s. He became successful until the early 1990s, of course, when many people struggled. And he tells a tale of very difficult challenges he had, uh, living in five homes in one year during the, the tough times of the early 90s. But then emerged grew his company to the point where they went public in the early 2000s as a, as a home builder. And then he came along to the global financial crisis and he struggled again and shrank the company down and then changed business strategies completely to become a uh, 
land developer and a commercial property developer with his partner then, Dwight Shar, which he talks about. He then converts his company as a home builder into a service company, managing the assets in the uh, private enterprise. So it's quite a story, quite an evolution, and quite a transition. One of the more interesting transitions in business strategy I've seen in the conversations I've had yet. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Chris Clementi. Welcome, Chris Clementi. Thank you for joining me to Icons of DCRE Real Estate. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So you're currently CEO of Comstock Holdings, a public company that develops and operates real estate assets and, and managing director and principal of Comstock Partners, another company, a private partnership that owns several assets through an individual LLC entities. At a high level, discuss your day-to-day activities and your company's business structures, if you would, please. Okay. I'll start with the business structure. The Comstock Holding Companies, <coughs> excuse me, has been a has been around since 1985. It has been a public company since 2004. At that point, we were focused primarily on residential for sale housing. So although Comstock Partners was doing commercial development, Comstock Holding was only everything it built, everything it touched, it was for sale. Everything in the private company, Comstock Partners, was for investment. So none of it was for sale. And the so holding companies was uh, the parent company of Comstock Homes of Washington and Comstock Homes of Atlanta and a couple of other places, uh, which I'm sure we'll touch on later. But the uh, in 2008, we decided that we needed to exit the for sale home building business because the private company's business had become more uh, substantial than the home builder was after the, the 2008, crisis. 9, 10, 11 crisis. Mm-hmm. Prior to the, the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers, we were up to about 1,000 units a year. We were in five different cities, and wow. the... Uh, uh, and the objective was to keep growing that business until the world changed. This was so, a private company at the time, right? It, no, that was public. Was By public that point, then? it was public. We took it public in 2004. Okay. And it was, and then we expanded into those other markets. Got it. When we went public, we were only operating in D.C. and Raleigh. Mm-hmm. And when, uh, at its peak, when we were doing 1,000 units a year, we were in Atlanta, Raleigh, Charlotte, Myrtle, and D.C. So um, there was a lot, lot going on. In any event, the private company became a better opportunity to continue the public company's business was to shed the home building operation and wind it down. We didn't sell it. And sure. the and refocus the public enterprise as a institutional style asset manager of real estate, and so we took the um, public company's platform, moved the private company's employees into the operation, and 
sold off the real estate that the home builder had over the next couple of years and in the process converted the business of the public company, which we technically finished that last year, the conversion. That's quite a complex series of activities, which I'd like to get into in further okay. depth. But first, perhaps go into the to your origins, your, your story, if you would, Chris. I was raised in this area. I, I was born in Wisconsin, but came here very early on. My family was from New York. We were in Wisconsin while my father was in medical school, which I think it was Marquette. And okay. so then he changed paths. I guess he didn't like medical school. He changed paths and transferred to Georgetown Law, and that's how we ended up here. That's quite a change. <laughs> so I grew up, and my parents divorced not long after we got here. I was probably four or five years old. So I grew up with my mom in Vienna, and we started working construction in high school. Liked what I was doing. I, was, I really wasn't, at the time, I didn't think about college. I was thinking about getting a job. Where'd you go to high school? I went to Madison High School in Vienna. Okay. And the, I was unskilled labor in high school on construction sites. And I noticed that the, you know, they would have us get there at 6.30 or 7 in the sure. morning, whatever it was. Yeah. And there was a whole bunch of us, maybe a dozen unskilled laborers. It was a big project in uh, Oakton. And they, they would have us just sit around and wait for them to tell us what to do. And you know, two guys would be told, go move those two by fours. And another guy or two would be told, go move those um, uh, bricks and go sweep out that garage and whatever they had chores for the day. And it was struck me as a complete waste of, of resources. And they didn't need to do it that way. So when I got to college, in my first year of college, I spent spring break in the dorm room figuring out how to do create a business out of that idea. Where were you in school? I was in Virginia Wes Wesleyan in Norfolk. Oh, and okay. So I, and I had gotten to know some of the home building businesses around here. <clears throat> and back then there was yellow pages, so it was easy to find more of them. And I uh, stayed back from spring break and wrote letters to every home builder and contractor I could find in the yellow pages and said, I'll rent you labor. You don't. And I told him I, the letter said something like I was a laborer. I saw how many people were sitting around doing nothing, waiting for assignments <clears throat> so I'll rent you labor on an as-needed, where-needed basis. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember the dollar amounts, but whatever, the, whatever I was paying the guys that signed up to work for me, I was charging double. And so uh, the home builders liked it because then they would just say, I need three guys on Wednesday mm -hmm. instead of having a whole crew sit around. Um, it was more efficient for them. And it was, it was a good business for a kid in school because I was able to go back to school after that first year. I transferred to Wisconsin, which was for not for any educational reasons. I just wanted to see what it was like to live there since I was born there. 
And the and I went back to school with enough money not to have to work during school. And so it was so I did it again the next summer. <clears throat> and it eventually got to the point where it took over um, took over my focus and I couldn't do it as well from afar. So I transferred back here to Mason and was I kept running that business probably five years total by the time I decided I needed to do something else. Now, Wisconsin's known to have a good real estate program. Did you, did you focus at all on that or not? I don't think they had it in the 1970s. Uh, I was there in 1978. Actually, grass camp was there then, actually. Was it? Yeah. I did not know that. At the time, I was actually I was thinking about going into psychiatry. Oh, and okay. So I was majoring in psychology, uh-huh. and the um, and I signed up for a couple of pre med classes at the advice of the uh, admissions group, and I told somebody in my dorm room, you know, I'm in, I'm going to do this pre med class. This was early on, mm-hmm. as the as the school year was just starting, and he was a friend, and he said, oh well. Let's get together Saturday night, and I'll show you a few things. And it ended up being a whole group of us that got together. And he took us to the cadaver room, and the the girls vomited, and the guys you know got queasy. And when he pulled the body up out of the stepped on a lever, and the body came up out of the formaldehyde, that's when I decided I am not cut out for medical school. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of that very short-lived plan. So I moved back. I went back towards construction seems like a good thing. Sure. And I took some business classes and, and moved to Mason after that year because my the following for my first business, which I called Collegiate Manpower, had become big enough after the first summer there was enough calls coming in that, that I hired even more people the second year, and the um, and it was a pretty good business. So you just bootstrapped it. There was no financial involvement at all. No, that. it was, you know, I was collecting on the invoices that I had sent just mm-hmm. in time to pay people. It was, you know, week to week. But it added up over the first couple of years. It was pretty good business. And as I said, I didn't have to work during the school year. So, Did anybody inspire you at all to do this, or uh, other than just your own ideas? Did you have a mentor or anything that kind of gave yeah, you? Some I advice? talked about it with my dad, but um, it wasn't you know, it, there wasn't any involvement uh, in that way. It was just brainstorming stuff. But cool, uh, it worked out. That's great. So you went to Mason. What you finish up with with a psychology degree or what? I I did not. Uh, stay with psychology the whole time. I started taking more business, business. classes. Yeah. And so I just, I focused on whatever was of interest to me. Sure. And I lost a lot of credits transferring. And so I never finished. I went through. Right to the business. I went five years total, five years, I think. And mm-hmm. by then it was, I had become so busy with work that I didn't finish. So how did that business then evolve into home building? Assuming that's well, it, where you went. It just, there. it I didn't evolve it. 
I just shut it down, I guess, oh, technically. You? Okay. Um, and I took a job. As I mentioned earlier, I grew up with my mom. But when I was in college, I got to know, I spent more time with my dad. And the um, he was doing construction jobs uh, for, typically he did them for banks. He did workouts uh, for banks. And, and then when it made sense, he would buy the property and, and take it on to their own account. He was a lawyer by training, as, as you may have guessed from the Georgetown Law Reference. So they, uh, he said, at one point he said, uh, I'm going to do one more job in Arlington, and then I'm going to get out of the business. Come work for us. I'll give you one year or, or one job, which will take a year to two years. And if you decide you like it, that's a good way to learn the business. And if not, you can go find something else. And the and I did like it, but most importantly, I started learning how to acquire how the deal was done. It wasn't just managing the construction that I was interested in. It was actually creating something that could make money. And the the result was long story short. They were selling, there was a company called Epic Financial, uh, which was run by a guy named Tom Billman. I remember. And they started as a uh, model home buyer, and they would rent them back to the builder. And when the projects were done, they would sell the units and make money. As he told the story, he had so much money being thrown at him in the early 80s by investors that he had to, he couldn't buy enough bottle homes, so he started buying whole subdivisions. The project that my dad did that was in Arlington was sold to Epic Financial. And so being on the construction site, I got exposed to Tom Billman, had coffee with him or whatever, talked a few times, and at the by the time the by the time that project was finished, I had signed a contract to buy a piece of ground in Centerville for 50 townhouses that I was going to buy from Reed Wills, or that I ultimately did buy from Reed Wills. And the Epic Financial had given me a letter of intent to buy all of those units. And I had gone around to the banks and tried to find financing, and everybody kind of laughed at me. Um, what's on your financial statement? <laughs> um, I didn't even have a, a credit card at the time. And the, uh, but then I uh, was introduced to United Savings Bank, uh, Howard Orbaugh, who I believe had financed that job in Arlington. And he, I met with his people and they said, well, this is, you, you don't qualify for a $5 million loan, but, let me introduce you to Howard. And I met with Howard and he said, listen to the story and, and about the Tom Billman thing. And he said, um, I'll make you the loan, but I want half the deal for his, I forget what they call it, but they had subsidiaries. Like 1987 or 88. It was 1985. 85, okay. Yeah. Actually, it was probably 1984. This we delivered our first house in 85. <laughs> So might have even been 83. But in any event, that's how I got the loan. And the, we set it up as, as some kind of partnership. 
I signed whatever documents I was told to sign because half of something was a lot more than all of nothing. And we started the, the site work. The Hazel Companies did the, William A. Hazel was sure. the land developer. They did a fixed price contract for all the land development and including the t- taking the risk of rock. And so we started this project in 1984. My wife's first job in Washington was with United Savings Bank. Oh, is that right? Yes, she worked for Howard Alball. Yeah. What was she doing? Just administrative work okay. there. She wasn't a producer. But she, I guess she eventually got into underwriting a little bit. And then they got into some trouble a yeah, later. They did. <laughs> well, it, a lot of those banks did. The yes. SNLs all went out. Of course. But... Actually, the um, I'm sure we'll touch on it later. We just bought a building down here uh, on the other side of the Boulevard uh, Residential Tower that was occupied, was built for United Savings Bank in the 80s by a fellow named Chuck Veach. Oh, yeah. and, the, and I remember being there at the party, the grand opening or open right. house or whatever sure. they called it. And I walked away with a bottle of wine that they were giving out to everyone that attended. And it had a picture, a sketch of the office building mm-hmm. on the label. And it ended up in my basement and I had it for years and years. And when we started doing business in this neighborhood, Chuck Beach still owned the property across from our first building and probably around 2005. I got to know Chuck, and I gave him that bottle of wine, <laughs> which he thought was pretty cool. I don't know if he still has it or, or whatever, but in any event, the we get started on the land development work, and I get a call from Howard one morning, maybe 10 o'clock in the morning. He says, have you seen the Washington Post today? I said, no, why? He said, just go get it and be in my office in an hour. And I went to 7-Eleven and picked up the Washington Post. And there was Tom Billman's picture on the front page of the Post. And he was on the lam, having sconded with whatever, millions of dollars of, of investor money. And the meeting with Howard lasted about five minutes. And he just said, did you read the article? Yes, read the article. So what are you going to do? And I, I said something like, well, I guess I'm going to figure out how to sell 50 townhouses. He said, get to work. So I left. And that's how Comstock got started. Hmm. Wow. That was a, it was, so this was, it was what, all 80, bootstrapped. 86, 85? Uh, well, 84, because 85, we delivered the first house. Okay. Which is why all of our promotional material says um, established 1985. Got it. Well, actually, because I forgot when we actually started. Years later, when we started printing brochures and materials and T-shirts for employees, the I, I went, it must have been 85. And then years later, maybe 10 years later, I found a box of documents in my basement when I was cleaning out uh, something, some file cabinet. Uh, and it was the incorporation documents from the company in 1984. Exciting. So, yeah. anyway. So that sellout went well, I assume. 
We made a little bit of money. I had a partner at the time that he was in, he, he was the son of my father's law firm partner. And, and we were just starting out together. We worked on that, that job in Arlington together. That's how we got to know each other. And so we did sell the houses, but it was a rough road. (laughs) Quite honestly, we didn't know what we were doing. And so we just fumbled through the first project and they dealt with all the problems that lack of knowledge really can create. So what lessons did you learn that first job? Not to pick your subcontractors from the yellow pages. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you were really ground up here as far as figuring things out at that point. It was it was a trial and error kind of startup. Mm-hmm. So, but we did we made a little bit of money. USB United Savings Bank got half of it, and the government got half, and half of what was left. And so we were starting to do home building. And found other sites then after that? We did. By the time that one was done, we had some projects in Vienna Mm -hmm. and Herndon, I think. And after a couple of years, around 1988, I think, Trent decided, my partner was Trent Taylor. We decided that we weren't going to, we didn't have the same objectives. Mm -hmm. So he went, he went with, we split up the assets. He took some of them. I took some of them. And he started his own company, and I kept going. Mm-hmm. I, to get a, I was going to get to this later, but I'm going to bring it up now. You are married to Dwight Shar's daughter. That's right? correct. So, so how did that relationship begin, and how did you meet Dwight the first time? Just it, it started as a blind date that was arranged by our parents. Uh-huh. And What day was this? 84. Summer okay. of 84. Interesting. And the, so almost 40 years ago. And they took us to, it was just an outing. It wasn't really a, it wasn't a blind date like you'd see in the movies. We just all went to a tennis match. Did your family know the Shars? Tracy babysat for uh, my dad's second group of kids. Oh, okay. Uh, so they lived near each other in McLean. And so that's how they knew each other. I think Dwight and Dan, my dad, had done some business together on lot sales or something like that when Dwight was with Ryan. And he was representing probably some bank or something that owned the land. And so they knew each other. And uh, Tracy was babysitter for my younger siblings. Um, from Dan's second wife. Cool. And then when did you start talking business with Dwight then? Um, several years later. The, we never did business together until I started the commercial group. And that would have been 99. And I had a piece of property under contract here in Reston. It's in this neighborhood. It's you can see the flag sticking up off the roof down the street there. Mm-hmm. And the rest in land had taken over, Terrabrook, I think it was called, had taken over the remnants of rest in land. And this was a three-acre site that had, 
It was zoned. I think it was zoned, but it had a lot of floodplain on it. So a couple of builders had had tied it up and then dropped it because they couldn't figure out how to build a building that would make money on it. And so they were, I still remember seeing some of their plans and they, and two different groups had come up with a plan for a 30,000 foot office building on stilts and the with parking underneath of it. And so I looked at it and, uh, got together with urban engineers, Eric Siegel, and we talked about how to get more density on it. And we figured out that you, we could put 90,000 feet on it by doing a, by building it into the grade. So there's two lobbies in that building, one in the front, one in the back. And the, when we did that, we had to park it with a parking deck. Um, so, and it's still there now. <clears throat> and the is this your first commercial project? It was the first. Yes, it was the first commercial we had done. No, it was the first one that started. I was mm-hmm. going to say we started on a retail deal, but that came later. Mm-hmm. And in any event, we had I, I had negotiated the deal with a gal named Tracy Graves that uh-huh. was at. Terrorbrook at the time, I think. Yes, she I think was. it was called Terrorbrook. I did a deal with Tracy as yeah. well, and the and I had a contract that said you can only build thirty thousand feet because that's what their pricing was based on thirty dollars a square foot or something thirty two dollars. It was roughly a million dollars, and when I figured out I could fit ninety thousand on it, I had to go back to see her and say I want to build a bigger building. Um, and I'll pay you a little bit more for it. And the, we adjusted the price to a million two or something like that and went to closing. And it was around the time, I think it was right before closing when, and I, I had a great relationship with Dwight right from the start. So we would talk business, but we never did business until this point. And the, I remember sitting at dinner with him one night, and he asked me, what are you doing with that office deal? And I explained where I stood on the 90,000 instead of 30,000 feet. And I had this group from Bethesda that was going to be the investor in the deal. But as I explained to Dwight, they wanted control and because they were putting up all the money. And so the, in essence, it was, I would have become the limited partner and it would have been their deal to develop and decide what to do with the property. And Dwight said, well, I'll do it with you. Let's just be partners. And that's how we started Comstock Partners. And that deal, we still own that building. It's been a great investment. It's almost, almost consistently been 100% leased all these years. Only time it wasn't is when we had to build the, when this neighborhood started, we had to take the pipe stem of a road that served that building and Chuck's property and Kaiser back at the end of the pipe stem and turn it into a a neighborhood street. So the dirt and all the disruption from that, a couple of people left and a couple of tenants left 
And so we had maybe 80% occupancy during that phase of development for the neighborhood. And once it got got rid of the dust and, and things got settled down, at least back up, and it's been that way ever since. Let's go back in time prior to that then. Okay. So you started building your home building business into the 80s. What happened in 1990, 91, 92 when we hit hit the, hit the skids <laughs> It was a rude quick. awakening for yes. me. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, we left in 88, 80, 87 or 88. And it was, but those were good years. And we were making a lot of money yeah. and building a lot of houses for a small company uh, anyway. And it was, looking back on it, it was like I woke up one day and I had, all of a sudden I had 30 or $40 million of bad debt that I had guaranteed. And Tracy had guaranteed it too, and my wife. And so it became a survival game. And we... I, I asked, I had become friendly with Reed Wills and, and other people and that were much older and been in the business for a long time. And everybody kept telling me, you're just going to have to file bankruptcy and start over. And uh, I was recommended to meet with this lawyer that was doing a lot of that for a lot of the industry players. And he told me, this is normal. <clears throat> this happens all the time and it's become normalized and you, you're not going to, it's not going to bother anybody down the road, but I just couldn't, it didn't sit well with me. So I decided not to hire him and I went back to every bank and met with them individually and said, come on, there's got to be some way to solve this. And the interesting thing was it took about, two years to get everything resolved. In the meantime, we went from selling 30 or so million dollars, no, $50 million of houses one year. It dropped down to 10 million the next year, and it was maybe 3 million the year after that. So it was not easy to keep it afloat. We shed almost all of our employees. <coughs> Excuse me. We had maybe, I think I had four people, including me, still at the company by the time we got to the bottom of the market and the, and the, it was the people that could wait for a paycheck until a house went to closing. Everybody else had to go get other jobs. So we, we were, I was negotiating with banks, the house would get sold and whatever money we got would go to the staff and we survived on and kept the company alive with tax refunds from the prior um, from the prior years and the um, ATMs. Wow. The ATMs were a godsend because I could get cash out of the bank uh, and I could run my credit cards to the limit. And then I would get a, a, uh, a letter from the bank saying, you're such a good customer, we're raising your credit limit because I always paid the minimum on time. And I probably had 10 or 12 credit cards because they kept showing up in the mail. Wow. And the kept the I kept going back to the ATM machines and the they used to send these blank checks that would just go against your credit card or your credit limit. And with the cash that <clears throat> that was coming in from tax refunds, 
and the cash that I could get out of the ATMs and, and use these checks, I was able to string it along and, and keep the business open until things got better. This is probably a 20% interest rate, I imagine. I remember it was 24. <laughs> uh, and by the time the dust wow. settled, by the time things turned around, I had about 250 or more thousand dollars of debt on these credit cards and, and no income. I mean, for other than these tax refunds and, and the wow. access to this credit that kept getting bigger. It was astounding. How long did you go through this? Was it over a year? Or? It was at least two years. Two years. Yeah, maybe two and a half. Yeah. And How did you sleep at night? That had to have been hard. It was hard. You know, it was a really difficult time. Uh, Tracy and I moved five years in one year, wow. one calendar year. Wow. Uh, Bank took our house in a negotiated, what do they call it, deed in lieu. Right. And the and we just we moved into a temporary. Actually, we moved into a house of a friend. The market was in the toilet. The friend had gotten a job in New York and had moved. The house was on the market and sitting empty. And so they were in town for something. They said, you know, it's been six months. I haven't even got an offer. Nobody even comes to see our house. Why don't you guys move into it? It'll probably sell if we get, if there's somebody living there, it'll be a better way to get the thing marketed. We moved in on a Friday and or during the week we move in. The house is all organized by the weekend. It sold the first weekend. Oh and the goodness. people wanted to move in so in 30 days. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Did you have children at the time or not? We had two. Wow. It was, it was a miserable year. But we got through it. And, the, and things started getting better in 93. Yeah. And the, we, we actually I brought in a fella, Greg Benson, became my partner in the home building business. He was a former NVR guy or NV Homes at the time, mm-hmm. and the and we just started building more houses, and things started going better, and we started making money again. And by the mid '90s, things were okay. By the late '90s, they were we were doing pretty well, and by 2004, it was it, we took it public. It looking back on that, it was a. It seems like it was a nanosecond of time when a company doing 50 or maybe uh, we were probably doing 80 or 90 million dollars of revenue. But it was unheard of that a home builder of that scale could go public. And all the big banks didn't want anything to do with it. And we did it with uh, BB&T Capital Markets out of Richmond. Did Dwight encourage you to do that? Because um, he had already gone public. He had gone public. He, I don't know. I wouldn't say it was encouragement, but we we certainly shared, compared notes on how to make it work. And the and the one thing he told me was that I remember was uh, don't let anybody talk you into doing it without B shares that you control. And so I can I can honestly tell you without that piece of advice, we would have lost the company in wow. the 2008 crisis. So wow. in any event, it was from the time we did the <coughs> IPO, 
we spent two two weeks on the road for the IPO. I think we had, I remember the stat sheet they gave me afterwards. It was 120 meetings in 10 days in, I don't know, 30 cities or something like that. It was all over the country. We weren't going to the big financial markets because it was such a boutique kind of deal and a boutique kind of bank that was leading the charge. So we had to go to you know, almost backwoods kind of you know, places where we would meet with uh, family offices and things like that. Sure. And that's yeah. how we got it public. And we did two more offerings than the first year. You on NASDAQ? We, we've been on NASDAQ ever since. Mm-hmm. So it was it was kind Not of a bootstrap kind of thing. Exchange. No, no. No, it wasn't didn't qualify for, for the big board. Right. So but we got through that and the um, as a result we had no personal guarantees anymore. And so it made it possible to do things. We raised a lot of capital that first year. Was this a C corporation? Or was it it was. Okay. And so it wasn't, you know, that business is tough to make a, a read work. Yeah, you can't. The, there's not um, enough income. It's a tough income. business to Good make business. as a public company. Right. It doesn't work very well when Wall Street wants to see quarterly right. growth. And as a small-scale home builder, you're not, it's not practical. You can't do it. Right? So we went out at $16 a share. It hit $32 a share. It was on that Mad Money show. It was mentioned on Mad Jim Money Kramer. when it was in the 20s. Right. And it shot up to 32 I guess, because of all the people that followed Kramer. And it was, that was the peak. And it started going down after 2007, that. I'm guessing. Yeah, 2007. Yep. Boy, home building was probably at its peak in this region in, in that era. We were selling houses like it was like selling candy. Everybody wanted it. It's incredible. I remember telling Tracy, this is going bad. This isn't, this isn't going well. We're making a ton of money right now, but it's not going to last. And the and she, I remember she said, "Well, why?" I said, "Well, I was at the dentist today, and the lady that was cleaning my teeth had had told me that she had bought three condominiums, and then I was at a lawyer's office, and he told me he was doing you know, land deals in Spotsylvania County or something like that, and you know, everybody's doing everything in in home building. Everybody thinks you can just." make a ton of money buying a condo or two and or three or four. And, and she said, well, you know, as long as everybody's making money, that's okay. But um, not long after that, we were at one of our kids' baseball games or, or football games or something. And people kept housewives that we knew. Three or four of them approached us. Hey, I'm buying you. Know, I need to. I want to buy more units. I bought two or three or whatever it is, and I know you're doing this project in Fairfax. Can I buy some more? And inevitably, it was it was just a sign that things had gotten out of control. There was too much money available for people that shouldn't have been buying mm-hmm. uh, houses. And the concept of real estate is a path to riches. It's not as easy as it sounds. <laughs> and not long after that, Lehman Brothers filed bankruptcy and the world collapsed. 
So, so what happened to your company at that time? Well, the, we were a public company at that point, so we had a board of directors, and the board of directors said we should hire a third party to advise us on what to do. Uh, it was clear we were doing 1,000 units a year. I forget the numbers exactly, 280, $300 million of revenue, something like that, and had been making money from the IPO forward. We made money almost every quarter. And you had already expanded to other markets. We we had bought companies in other markets. So we had uh, assumed debt and uh, we had bought land and companies. And the, the goal when we went public was I had already started the commercial thing. And the, the objective was to get to 2,000 units a year and then look for a buyer and sell the enterprise, but not the public platform, and then look for something else to do with the public platform, which might have been converting it to a REIT as the commercial portfolio group. The, you, you can't plan these things. I mean, it, you know, shit happens, right? So when the world changed... You know, all we could do was start negotiating with the banks again. So you say, I went through the same process in 2010 to 12 or thereabouts you did in 90, 90, that I did in 91, 92, 93. And, the, and in both cases, I went to the banks and said, I'm not bringing lawyers. I'm not going to waste money on lawyers. I'm not going to file bankruptcy. I'm here to work a deal out. And the... The majority in the first go round, everybody was filing bankruptcy. And so I was an outlier. So the it bought me time, for better or worse, they wouldn't deal with me at, at first. They said, Well, you need to have a lawyer. We're not allowed to meet with you without a lawyer. I said, Okay, well, call me when that changes, because I'm not going to hire a lawyer. And the and we spent the better part of two years touching base with the banks, but not really, nobody was foreclosing. It was just a, a stalemate while they dealt with all the bankruptcies they were dealing with. So there were, that makes it sound a little bit too simple because it was a lot more complicated than that. But you know, we were focused on keeping the company alive and the, and the banks were focused on the bankrupt the ones that were filing bankruptcy and all the battles that they had to fight. Talk about the evolution then from, you know, the home building business into what you now have a little bit. Well, in, um, in 2012, uh, I hired a, a new CFO and he came in and we started talking about what to do with the company. Um, and as I recall, the market cap had fallen to something like $30 million or no, way below that, probably $10 million when he joined. And he had come from Choice Hotels, big company, and, had, and he was able to help shape the concept of how do we transition into a new business. Being at a hotel company, and not the leading ones. Yeah, he'd been through some storms, I'm sure. He had. <laughs> yeah, and, and he such was, a volatile person. He's a really smart guy. His name's Joe Squarey. He yep. he was really smart, really helpful. And we we 
we started, I initially said, I want to convert to, I want the commercial portfolio, Comstock Partners, to take over the public company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we ended up saying, before we do that, let's try bringing in other businesses that are complementary to the home building field. And we will, uh, in theory, create a, a larger enterprise that is in multiple segments or multiple aspects of the real estate business. And so we spent a couple of years looking at, at companies. And we bought a environmental engineering company in Pennsylvania. And it was a small acquisition. It wasn't anything major. But the idea was to do a roll-up. And we already had the public company, so we didn't have to go public. We just had to create scale. And the, so we started with that. Uh, we, had, we looked at bro- buying brokers, looked at buying engineering companies and, and, and all kinds of other things that came up. Was there a business integration strategy with, with these acquisitions? I mean, how did was, you see that we had building a, in, I guess? We had a, we would, well, we only bought one company. Okay. Because after that, it was clear that this wasn't going to work. <laughs> okay. And so we kept that company for several years. We sold it last year, actually, in 2022. And the, what we thought was going to work was that a manager here would manage these companies, uh, like we had done when we bought the home building companies in the other cities. And that worked in home building because they had a bigger scale and it was the same business mm-hmm. that we were already in. This was so different than home building. Uh, that we could not get a the right person to manage it. We we could not attract a the kind of talent that would have been necessary to manage that business and grow it. So it's we a completely different business. Yeah, so we pivoted out of that and into what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. So two thousand started that process in two thousand twelve, two thousand eighteen. Uh, we announced we were getting out of the home building business, the for sale business, and the and the commercial operation was merged in, not the companies, but just the staff. So there, it was a merger of operating platforms, but not of enterprises. Mm-hmm. And so we we got going with the transition, and I didn't want a fire sale. There was opportunities to just sell all the real estate that was in the home building operation and be done with it. Uh, but the, it was clear that it was the only way to do it was fire sell it. And I wasn't willing to do that. So we uh, methodically sold out of the units and finished on the units that we were, where we had um, you know, a hand, maybe a couple dozen units left in a subdivision we finished the subdivision in the uh, So you land. organically closed it down. Right. You didn't sell the entities as built. Correct. I see. We sold some land. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we sold EYA, I think, Miller and Smith. I think EYA, no, not EYA, Drees. Drees and Miller and Smith bought lots. At the end of selling out the, organically selling out the homes that were remaining, 
And when we were just selling lots, we sold them all to those guys, and all in Virginia. Uh, and we built out the other projects, and, and it wound down. The last house was sold in 19, and the last lot was sold in 22. So as you were transitioning, was it the partnership that you had with Dwight that was scaling up the commercial side of the business? Or yes. how, did, how did that happen? Yeah, it Talk was, about that evolution. From the time Dwight got involved in Comstock Partners, it was always a separate business. There was no right. crossover, and, right. and the restriction was Comstock Partners could not do anything that was for sale, any housing for sale. Got it. So that kind of... Kind of a conflict of interest of both of your businesses. Right. Yeah. So we started with that little office building down the street, and around the same time, I had a another piece of property under contract in Ashburn that was 50 acres uh, or thereabouts. And it was initially, I thought I was going to build a couple dozen houses on it. Mm-hmm. And Eric Siegel came in to do the engineering. This would have been 99 or 2000, maybe 2001. And uh, a fellow that was managing that process here came into my office and said, you got to come down to the conference room and hear what Eric has to say. And I go into the conference room and Eric's sketching on Bumwad. He's laying out the subdivision on this property. And he looks up and he says, you sure you want to build a few dozen houses next to a metro station? And I went, what metro station are you talking about? There had been articles that there might be a new extension to Dulles at some point, but there was no, nobody really thought much of it. Nobody thought it would ever really happen you know, with all the bureaucracy that is involved. This is what, about 2000 or so? Yeah, 2000, maybe 2001. And so it was just kind of a, oh yeah, sure. If they ever do that, that'll be interesting kind of thing. And, but we, I remember calling Dwight and saying, you know, I've got this property in, in Ashburn, and the engineer says there's going to be a train station there. And so I'm thinking, I'm just going to mothball it. What do you think? And he said, well, you know, let's go through the numbers. And it was clear the, the right decision was to mothball it and wait and see what would happen, as opposed to selling a few houses. And so we looked into it, found out that it really was coming, it really had a potential of being real, I should say. And the I think at the time, the only thing, it had only gotten to the point where they had done the economic impact study and and, and determined where the stations could fit. And it was all based on the, they have to have a straight run of the Dulles Toll Road that can fit the train station and the platform plus all the rails that cross over and get past the station and then back coming back the other way. Mm-hmm. And the only place that that could happen outside of past 606 in Loudoun County was mm-hmm. right in front of our property. So that's how we ended up with. And that wasn't planned. That was just serendipity. It was just luck. Wow. White used to tell me, better lucky than smart. <laughs> And I'm not sure if that was a message or <laughs> if that was just a saying, but it was, it was true. 
So you decided to wait. And when did you start building out there? Well, first we had to rezone it. Yeah. And to rezone it, the what we learned was Loudoun County had years before in the mid-90s when there was the first chatter that there could be a, a new rail line that would go out there. They had put a zoning code together, added it to their um, list of zoning categories, and it was conceived as transit-oriented development zoning, but they didn't do what it takes to make the density work. For instance, I remember they had, you could build to a two and a half FAR, but you had to have 75 foot setbacks from the street. And so for every building. So it was like office park right. concepts yeah. in, with high density. Yeah. So we first thing we had to do was convince them to change that code. And we worked with them. It was a very collaborative effort. Because uh, once they realized, oh my gosh, if this really happens to be where a train could come, this zoning category just doesn't work. We uh, we worked with them to redraft it. And uh, that took about a year. That probably would have been 2002. Well, we had to look at Fairfax County and, you know, yeah. rest of town center and say, yeah, I think we need to do well, something Well, that, that was the discussion. They were saying, <laughs> we want rest in town center. And we were saying, well, then you need to change the code. Sure. And you can't zone, we can't do the rezoning till we change the code. Right. So we worked with them uh, for about a year to get the code fixed. And then we started the rezoning, which went for all of, most of three, 2003 and into 2004. It didn't get through the final hearing until December or whatever the last meeting was in 2004. And the board had been voted out by then. So it was a lame duck board handling the zoning case. And it went before the election. We had seven out of nine or whatever the number was indicating they would support it. After the election, it dropped down. We passed on a five to four vote. Wow. And because some of them didn't want to vote yes on their way out, or maybe it was the ones that didn't want to, that knew they were staying that mm -hmm. didn't want to vote yes. I don't remember the details. But the, we got through the zoning, and the new board came in in January, and the first thing they did was instruct the county attorney to find a way to overturn the zoning approval that was granted by the lame duck board. Wow. And the, so after two years of working to get it zoned and three years in total, the, that was kind of a disappointment. But the, as I recall, the uh, Virginia's, the state attorney general said, you can't do that. They, the previous board had authority to zone that property. You're stuck with it. And so we started doing our development work about a year later and building the streets. We had to build the sewer from about a mile away. Mm -hmm. And we had to run through, I think it was 12 different properties. So it took a while to get all the easements and things like that. And this was but under Comstock Partners. That was all under Comstock Partners. Right. And, the meet, and for years, I, I wore two hats. Right. I still wear two hats. But I want to talk to you about that. How you managed two companies at the same time would be an interesting. It's all about the people. 
Um, they, uh, we had good people on both sides, otherwise it wouldn't have worked. Uh, but it was, um, you know, there was tension between the groups at various points in time because of a variety of things, uh, which is at the, which was at the center of the um, decision to merge the operations and rebuild it as a commercial enterprise when the time came for that. So you, you had the, the, the Loudon properties, but then talk about you own this building down the street. When did you start assembling ground where we're sitting here for this? For this In site? 2005, Fairfax County issued an RFP. Um, and the, uh, the concept outlined in the RFP was this property we're, we're in right now is on eight acres that was a commuter parking lot. And they, um, uh, they envisioned a Vienna Metro kind of facility. Big parking garage above ground. Uh, but they said in their RFP, you can put retail around the base of it and maybe some pad sites. So the county runs the dirt here? They did. They yeah. do. And so the, they wanted to sell the land to a developer that would in turn build the garage. Uh, and the concept was, we'll give you the land, as I recall, we'll give you the land, you give us a garage. And then you can, we'll zone it so that you can do some commercial development there as well. And as I recall being told, everybody produced plans that were basically just what they asked for. Mm -hmm. And we went in and said, we'll do this. If you'll, we don't want to buy your ground. <laughs> we told them we want to lease it from you for a hundred years and we will, um, push the garage underground, your, the county's cost for the garage went to, I don't know, it's $110 million or something uh, for the garage they needed. So we said, keep the ground, you pay for the garage, you hire us to build it, and we'll push everything underground, all the parking and the bus depot underground, and at the max density, we could put a million six of density on top of your land. And here's the financial pro forma. Here's the projections of how much revenue you'll get over the years. And of course, there's no comparison to selling the ground and really just trading it for a garage. So let's so, talk about how that idea evolved. I had done the... Uh, the office building down the street when we took it from 30,000 feet of plan right. to 90,000 right. feet in reality, I had done that with Eric Siegel and Doug Carter and at Carter, uh, Davis, Carter, Davis Scott. Carter Scott. Right. And so I went back to them and said, let's figure out what we can do with this land. And it was in those brainstorming sessions that we came up with the concept that is pretty much what we built here. The buildings would have looked different based on the original sketches and all but the so Doug Carter's the architect for this property right? he's he designed the garage okay. and he designed and he was the land planner for for it this first mm -hmm. what has now become phase one of five phases of this neighborhood and and Eric was the engineer and uh, and we uh, in 2007 Early 2007, the board decided 
The market's gone crazy since we negotiated that deal with Comstock. We had signed a, a preliminary agreement with the county probably in 2006. And so 2007 starts, every newspaper was saying the values of real estate are going up 20% a year or something like that. And the county board decides at the 11th hour, as the it, we're on the agenda for formal approval of the definitive agreements to enter a P3 and do this uh, ground lease partnership. And the board said, pay the cancellation fee and put it back out to market. Let's see if we can get a better deal than what we negotiated two or three years prior. And so they canceled it. And in and they said, we're going to put it back out. You, you're welcome to bid on it again. In eight, the world changed before they put it back out on the market. And so we, we bid on it again. And there wasn't as much competition as there would have been in 2007. So did you get a better deal out of it or not? Or was it about the same deal? Uh, I would say we got a better deal. It was more well-conceived. Uh, but the partnership has been... A, it's been a tremendous eye-opening experience because as a home builder, especially a small-scale home builder from the first times I ever dealt with county authorities, you, you always had the, the big brother impression of the county, where whatever county you did business with. And the, this has been a highly professional, uh, well-intentioned partnership We're going on 15 years or more, depending on which RFP you, you use as the starting point. So the document between you and the county is the ground lease. Are there other documents that you have with that? Oh, there's, there's a, yes, several so documents. parking agreement, managing part, Everything. The, we built the garage for them as okay. the construction manager. and uh, So you have an REA with that? Basically. Yeah, we have. So there's a land lease. There's an REA. There was the construction management agreements uh, and a few other things. Uh, so it, it's a file cabinet full of documents at this point. But um, there was a fellow there named Rob Stalzer. He's now the city manager in Fairfax City. And he was instrumental in keeping it moving forward. By, and it takes time to do these things. And it takes time for uh, big organizations, especially governmental bureaucracies, to get to the point where there's a document that they are allowed to sign. So it was, I think, December of '09. Uh, when we finally got to the point that we had a doc, a definitive agreement to sign, they called it the comprehensive agreement. And the, uh, by that time we, we were literally running up to a deadline to start this garage. If they wanted to meet the, the announced opening date of the Metro, which I think was 2013 or something. Mm -hmm. Early 13, I think they Metro had said they would be here. So we just had to get going. So as this, as we were digging the hole, 
the which everybody called the big dig because it was it's eight <laughs> stories deep and generated enough dirt. Jim Davis was our precon and our and has been our contractor on the job, and he brought in a a cross section of FedEx field, and he said we could. And he showed us we could fill this stadium up to the upper deck with the dirt coming out of this hole. Wow. And in retrospect, that might have been a better use than letting Dan Snyder run that team there. <laughs> um, but in any event, <laughs> um, anyway, they, they, we broke ground in 2011, April of 11, I think, and started delivering. We delivered the garage in 2013 in time for the Metro deadline, but Metro was late. So the garage that's downstairs, all 3,500 spaces and the 10 or 12 bay bus depot that's in, inside the building sat empty for a year before wow. Metro got here. Uh, and so by that time, we had started that apartment building, the boulevard, and had Probably it opened in 16, so we started in early 14. So I'm trying to think about the economics here a little bit on how you did a ground lease with the county. And you built this 3,500-space parking garage, which was to accommodate metro transport and, of course, the commercial development here. But right. You had maybe one building up at that point, so you certainly overparked the property considerably. Well, not so really. They, when when Metro opened, there was so much ridership totally. that the that the entire garage was full. Really, even there there was nobody living in the apartment building yet. You know, we started that apartment building in early '14, and they opened in July of '14 for the Metro. And so, so there's 2,300 spaces yeah. that are reserved for Metro with okay. a separate entrance. Got it. And there's 1,200 that wrap around and above that. You think of it like a seven-layer cake. Comstock owns and operates the top two layers, and the county owns and operates the bottom five layers. And the and then under and that was not including the garage that's under this building. This had, was the party wall, if you will, between the two garages. The two sections of garage was at the front of this building, and so they and there's separate entrances. There's four different entrances to the garage, and uh, we would it would be full every day. They they were people were parking in the aisles in the fire lanes. There were so many cars here that just to ride Metro, uh, that we were in the Metro parking business as well as the county. And the county had the flash pass because they're part of the Metro system. We didn't, but we priced the same and people parked here every day. So the economics is that, uh, so you had the ground lease, but so they actually physically have the ownership of a portion of the parking garage as well, not just right. lease. They're not leasing that. They own the bottom five layers of the seven layers. I was wondering layers. how you were going to finance. <laughs> they floated <laughs> a bond. They floated <laughs> a bond for to pay for the garage. Yeah, and the and we 
we financed the rest with just Bank America actually has been our lender and Merrill Lynch all through the uh, entirety of this project. And they've been great to work with because the, they, they have to understand the different, it's different than just building, financing a building sitting on a piece of ground. No, of course. So it's, uh, it's rather complicated. Yeah. And whether it's the REAs or the, the maintenance agreements, I mean, there's, the county was extremely focused in the negotiations on every piece of steel being accounted for. Is it for the benefit of the private structure or the public structure and how, and every cubic yard of concrete. So it was a, it was an audited construction job at, at the end and it had to be exactly right in order for it to qualify for the bond financing that the county was raising. So that's a good segue to my next question. So we, you mentioned Jim Davis earlier and I wanted to bring up, we, um, he talked about in, in his episode that you that parking garage that you developed and you talked about mm-hmm. was a new technology called Carbon Cure for carbon energy absorbing concrete process. He talked about was that something that you and he just talked about, or was that something the county wanted to instill, or what? How did that that process come? The carbon cure technology is being deployed on. Phase two. It wasn't in the original county oh, okay. uh-huh. building. It wasn't around then. Or okay. at least we weren't aware of it if it was. And uh, Jim approached me while we were in pre-con for phase two and explained what it is mm-hmm. and um, asked if we would consider using it. And I thought it was a great idea. And this whole climate change and and carbon exercise that the world is undergoing, so much of it is just fluff and marketing spin, uh, but this is real. And, and so I think of it as low-hanging fruit. And the development represents, uh, there's so much carbon produced from the construction materials being manufactured and or placed that it just it was such a no-brainer to allow them to use carbon cure here and the schuster concrete is the contractor doing the work and the cost was about the same as not using it so there was no reason not to and the benefits when you think about the impact that development has on the environment and i am not an environmental ambassador. I'm not a warrior for the environment. I think some of the uh, the stuff that we are being told to do, like get rid of gas stoves, it's just, it's too much. Uh, and so the, um, the concrete, being able to trap the carbon that's produced in the manufacturing of concrete is just so easy to say yes to. I don't know why everybody's not doing it. And what they do is The company is called Carbon Cure Technology, and you can see how it works on their website. They have a a, a video that explains it all. The carbon is trapped as as it is being produced from during the manufacturing phase, and and there's a big 
device. It looks kind of like a oversized, like a giant vacuum cleaner, and it captures the carbon. And I'm way oversimplifying this, That's uh, fine. obviously, but they inject it into the mix, the cement mix, and as as it goes into the cement, it creates, it triggers a a chemical reaction that results in the carbon being trapped in the concrete and the concrete being stronger than it, concrete made without this. And so in Europe, it's apparently been used for years and it's relatively new here. So the building codes here don't, they don't embrace it yet. And what I mean by that is our building codes in America are specified the amount of cement that is required in a cubic yard of concrete or a percentage of, of the concrete has to be cement. In Europe, it's based on the strength of the concrete. And so this makes this this technology makes the concrete stronger. So in theory you can build with less steel and less materials in general. You still have to reinforce it, I assume. Right. But yes, there's steel galore. I mean, these you can right. see uh, on that building, you can't see it from this angle, but it's all post tension slabs. So there's tons of steel. But the you can use you, carbon cure concrete reduces the amount of steel and the structure is stronger. So your slabs can be thinner and, and your columns can be. More than right. as much mass, right? So the now we're not doing that part of it. We are you sticking with the the code requires because our codes, as I said, is based on the amount of uh, cement in the mix, not the strength of the concrete. So we're doing we're doing overkill. We're using carbon cure, which means our concrete's stronger. But we're still using the prescribed, the typical amount of, of materials. Eventually, I think the local jurisdictions or the international building code will catch up with this technology and allow you to use less materials. But until then, you have here you have to use the the larger amounts. It's interesting. You think the governments would listen and, and try and well, make that happen? Here's another one. This is the, if you look out there, there's tons of this stuff. Typical rebar epoxy painted. Okay. This is a carbon fiber rebar. Oh my goodness. The difference in weight is amazing. And, <laughs> and so. Probably half, if not less than half. Something like that. So this is coming. This is actually manufactured in uh, Winchester, Virginia. And what is the material here? Carbon fiber. Really? So the problem with this material, it's new, so it's not it's not embraced by the codes yet, uh, but it it can't be bent. Yeah. So this can be bent in the field. The, the right. typical steel um, uh, rebar gets bent out there. The this has to be bent in the factory, so it complicates the design and and the process. But the it's so much lighter. Imagine how much structural benefit you get from something that can't be it can't corrode. We this have is garages what we use for golf. Right? 
drivers. Don't they use carbon fiber now so. on golf? Yeah. yeah. And so if you think about all the garages that were built 30 or 40 years ago, they we own some of those. And we have to we have to deal with the spalling and, and upkeep, which is the result in part the result of water infiltration that gets to the steel bars and they rust. So these carbon fiber bars will never rust. So there's all kinds of benefits to it. So you know, as the as the environmental war goes on between industry and, and government, of you know, these are things that are easy to accomplish and everybody should embrace this because it's so much it's it's not and what about cost per square foot per, per linear foot it doesn't cost any more than this really wow it's a no-brainer yeah. it sounds like wow it's yeah. impressive so you've been right now this is not allowed to be in the buildings the codes don't allow it you can only use it in flat work. So you can use it in ground level slabs and sidewalks, but eventually that will, I think that'll change and you'll see carbon fiber. Is it a function of the writer's laboratory doing tests on it? To, to Probably. It? Yeah. It's, this is brand new. This right. this company started doing this just in the yeah. last year or two Got from it. what I understand. That's cool. So you are using it though? Now. In the flat work. That's cool. So, in spite of the pandemic over the last three years, you've been able to continue your development and investment activities. Perhaps explain how you've been able to keep the momentum going, you know, with this environment we're in. We have really good people here and that have tons of experience. You know, some people, some managers hire below them in fear for somebody taking over their job. Dwight always preach to me, hire the smartest people you can get and you know, let them uh, let them raise the, the capabilities of your company. And so we have, we have guys here that have far more experience than, than I have in commercial development, 40 years, for instance. And so this is in part, we've been able to do what we're doing and continually doing it during the pandemic because of the people we have here and the, and the talents they bring to the table, but also because of our relationship with um, Merrill Lynch and B of A and the access to capital that we have and credit where due. My partner, Dwight, is my partner in, in both companies now. He was only in the commercial business until, I forget the exact timing, but last year, Dwight became a shareholder of Comstock Holding Company as well. So he and I are equal partners in both now. And as a result, we have, we have relationships that, that would, not, would not be at the level they are if we didn't have a partner like that. So you're able to keep going when others can't financially. We, well, the, you know, every... Everybody has their own, you know, their own relationships they have to work with. The, um, yep. We have a, it's, it's not just financial, it's the product is attracting users. And that has enabled us to justify keep going. The, this building was, as I mentioned earlier, the Google building was opened in 2019 the, that was the first office building we built 
on Reston Station's Metro Plaza. The other two came in sequence after that, but they're all leased, and that that has a lot of value. Uh, we we closed permanent financing on these three buildings with Blackstone in 2021, in the fall of 21, and recycled our lines of credit from the the banks over to phase two. You're 100% leased or 90 We have one floor available in this building and mm-hmm. it's in negotiation now. So it's essentially 100% leased. That's great. Now, it's not 100% occupied. <laughs> the, okay. uh, this building has a lot of people in it. Uh, Google has a lot of people coming in every day. But that's new. Up until a few months ago, they right. might have had 50 people a Quiet. day in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Comstock's been in here every day. Well, we moved into this building during the pandemic uh, in 21. We moved. And that was because... We were in that building that we built 20 years ago for many years. And a tenant that was, we had, those floor plates are only 15,000 feet. It's a small footprint building. Uh, and the tenant that was above us needed expansion space. We had the fourth floor. They had the fifth floor. Their lease was coming up for renewal or maturity. And one of the managers from that company came to see me and said, we have to leave unless you can give us your floor. And he knew this building was under construction. So we said, sure, we'll move and I'll do it again. If If somebody wants this floor, we have enough of a portfolio now. We could find a place to put Comstock in a number of different buildings. And so we'll keep moving as as it may turn out, depending on the way the uh, demand for this building goes. Mm-hmm. So talk about what you're doing. You know, you've got this building, you've got, looks like across the street here, you've got a JW Marriott Hotel under construction, and then you have three other cranes over here. So talk about the, the product, you know, what you have. So what, what we have, this map, I know your listeners can make it a little bit easier to explain. So when we started with Reston Station, that building that we first built 20 years ago is right there with the adjacent parking deck. Yep. This is the county property, the eight acres that was, Mm -hmm. I forget the name, but it was nothing but asphalt and bus depot and parking lot for commuters. And so that's the P, the P3 with Fairfax County is based on that eight acres. It took a while, but after this was well underway, we started negotiating with the 32 property owners that owned the condo office buildings that were over here. It's, an, it's another eight acre site or thereabouts. And we spent five years negotiating with them and they had to they had to go in all at once because it was a condominium association and, and there's rules about thirty two owners thirty two owners so it took us five years to negotiate a deal with the group and so that is now what we call phase two phase three is what we bought from JBG on the other side of Wheelie Avenue 
This is called Midline, and they have they sold the townhouse land and this condo pad to EYA and another home builder. And then we took this eight acres here, and that will be phase three. Along the way, we bought across the highway, we bought these. You don't see it, but this is, there's a building here that we're going to knock down. And then these two buildings in a three building package, we bought those from JBG in 2018, I think. And the, then we bought this one and a bank branch that's on that site in 2019. And Vornado had planned, Vornado, we bought that from JBG and TA. When Vornado and JBG got together, Vornado owned that property. And so they had gotten zoning for a million, two or three of additional density in 2012. But what they had done was they just took big, tall buildings and wrapped them around the parking lot. They didn't do anything to create space, place, and because they knew they were going to sell it. So they just secured the density and then um, ended up merging it into the JBG operation. We looked at it and thought, wouldn't it be better if we could solve the grade problem and create a better experience on that side of the road, more like what you have on this side of the highway. And so we're back in the county adjust, making adjustments to the zoning case that Vernado did 10 years ago and, and including the additional land that we bought. So uh, we're adding million six or something, million seven of new development over there ice rink and, and all kinds of other stuff. But importantly, where it worked, the way it works right now is you get off this pedestrian tunnel and you go down an escalator. And then to get to our buildings, you go down a hill, across a parking lot and back up another hill. So we figured out that we could, by knocking down one of the buildings, the most eastward building of the ones that we bought, we can uh, accomplish a more efficient garage because the garage parking is underground. Uh, rather than building a U-shaped garage that wrapped around that building that is still there for now, it's still there. We can build a rectangular garage, which will make it more efficient to build. We can move the tenants from that building into the other buildings, which will put those buildings pretty close to 95 or 100% least and the and create a walk off a at grade walk off from the metro directly onto the plaza like you have on this side of the highway so you're looking at similar density on the other side of the road as you are here yes same yes same FAR um, yeah which i think is three and a half you have buildings here that are what, 12 stories? 20. 20. Yeah. That, the apartment building is 21. This one's 17, 16. Taller ceilings in this one. That one is 14 or you know, 14 stories. The so hotel the will be 25. Tyson's corner density. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, you can go higher at Tyson's. We're building to the maximum density allowed in Reston. So town center is similar yeah. to this. Yeah. That's true. Interesting. Exciting. So obviously your partnership with Dwight and obviously the relationships you have with the institutions are allowing, I assume, that you're not leading tenant demand. You're you're kind of accommodating tenant demand. Is that kind of the thing? Well, the... It might be helpful to explain when we started this, the office component of Reston Station, the, we said we're going to charge rents comparable to Reston Town Center. Mm-hmm. And most of the brokers we met with said, you're crazy. You can't compete with them. They're the 800-pound gorilla in the market. They own the market, and you're not going to succeed. And But we looked at the data. You could see that the... Town center was 95% leased or more at, at the time. They still are, from what I understand. And they, were, they didn't have the flexibility to accommodate the growth of their tenant base. So the only way a tenant could get more space there was wait around until somebody left. So we gave them a place to go. Google came here. Rolls-Royce came here. Megaphone, which is now owned by Spotify, came here and a handful of others. But the town center just backfilled the space. It seems like it was overnight. They knew what was what was taking place better than we did, I'm sure. And so they had it all lined up. And when these come when our tenants left town center, before you knew it, they had new tenants taking their space. Well they had Volkswagen and Fannie yeah. Mae. And those were even even additive because they had yeah. room to build more buildings. Yeah. And they're still building yeah. as you are. So it's interesting. It was clear though, when you looked at the the number of leases in this corridor and the and the types of tenants and the growth trajectory they had been on, that there was a there was a need for more space. And so we I think we were See, 2019, we leased something like 600,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. Um, 20, we leased 300,000. Last year, we leased 250. And this is in the pandemic. Like that, right. This year, we've leased 150,000 square feet of office space at Reston Station, mm-hmm. just in the first quarter. I mean, in negative absorption in just about every other market in the whole region, yeah, if the, not in the country. The flight to quality is real. It, it is, there is absolutely negative absorption in Northern Virginia right now and in the D.C. market as a whole. But the, every one of our tenants has either come from a town center setting or from an office park where they don't want to be in the office parks anymore. And they, they have become more focused on attracting their workforce back to the office than they were two or three years ago. So the demand for these kinds of buildings is in these kinds of locations is real and it, and it continues. So what do you, I mean, stepping back, what's your perspective on that? What are the tenants telling you? Why, why, why is their interest here and why do they want to do that? They need place. They need a, a place that is attractive to their t- their workforce right. that has amenities like rooftop decks and restaurants and bars. And we're creating a destination here. We're not just building these buildings for the people that will occupy them. We're building these buildings 
for the people that will come here to dine out or play golf in putt shack or go grocery shopping. We're working on a grocery deal across the street that's presumably, hopefully, we'll be in a position to announce it in the next 90 days. Uh, We're building a whole neighborhood here, not just a a project. And what started out as eight acres now covers more than 80 acres and has, you know, it's both sides of the toll road. And from what I've been told, it's the only metro station, uh, it's the only development that surrounds a metro station in the, at least in Northern Virginia, I think is what, what they were saying. Well, I mean, National Landing certainly does, but yeah, <laughs> yeah that's but, true. Yeah. So last year I took, I have a community of young people that I kind of oversee and, and help think things through in my, early in my career. And we went with my friend Ray Ritchie and we toured Reston Town Center with Ray and took about a 45 minute walk around the campus there to mm-hmm. see quite an impressive array of development and got up into the Fannie Mae building and looked at what's going on. It's quite a project and obviously it's a, a well-established mixed-use environment. It started off with Gulf Oil back in the early right. 80s, of course. So they've got 40-some years of you know of development history there. Yeah. And it sounds, in the way it looks here where I'm sitting, that you're trying to catch up. <laughs> so talk about, is this the vision of your project here analogous to Reston, or do you have a different vision here? Well, I think we're a little bit more compact. If you know, The neighborhood is more dense. The, you know, all of the Almost all of the buildings here will be taller, and the town center has a mixture of heights. The, they've done a great job with it, and, and they are formidable competition. But we are—we have been able to achieve the kind of rents that Ray's been able to achieve at Reston Town Center, in part because of what we're doing and how amenitized it is. But the the companies that are coming here are leaving; they're downsizing, so they're they're leaving. ICF took two hundred ten thousand or two hundred twenty thousand feet next door, took the entire building. They moved out of two buildings in Vienna and had, that were over 300,000 feet. So it was not a step up in rent cost in gross. They're spending about the same amount of money on rent, uh, but they're getting a better environment for their workforce. And they, are, they just moved in in October, I think, or November of last year. Um, so they have not fully occupied the building yet, but we see more and more of them coming in every month. New Star took three floors and took half a building in the third building we built. They have Then they were sold to TransUnion, and so we're waiting to see what they're going to do with the space, how much of it they're actually going to occupy, but that's built out. And then Care, no, Clara Bridge, took the other half of that building and that's in production right now they were sold after they signed the lease they were sold to Qualtrics and so they're telling us they're going to move 500 people in in June or July when the space is ready so it has to be I mean I keep reading about it the data center growth in Northern Virginia has got to be driving a big part of the office demand here. Is that, is that the case? 
I yes, there's you know, we're even hearing from some tenants that want to have the ability to add data center, a floor in an office building as a data center with their office operations in the same building. There's obviously utility demand there that's pretty significant, yes. of course. So that's a different type of, it may, I don't know structurally if it makes that much different, but certainly the electrical systems have to be a whole lot different for that, I would imagine. Yeah. And the, at Loudoun Station, we have data centers as next-door neighbors. The, right. the headcount is very low compared to you know, apartment buildings and office buildings. And the power supply is ex- exceeds what we need for an office building. Mm-hmm. So are you providing land for data centers in, in, over there? We're, we're, we don't have to. I mean, no, we're not. In Loudoun Station, there's... It's, that project is right in the middle of the what they call data center alley. They're right. everywhere. And so they're from the metro station, they're heading east with data center development. So and and they've already built on the parcels that are closest to us. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to provide anything there. Here we ha- although that is one of the places where we've heard from tenants that are contemplating prospective tenants that are contemplating mixing a data center into a building where they would put their headquarters. Interesting. Haven't seen it happen yet, but I guess it could. Mm-hmm. So let's let's go in now into your companies a little bit and their teams. Are you vertically integrated at Comstock Holdings with asset management, property management, development, leasing? Yes. And what is your philosophy for hiring and retaining your talent? We have, we started out in the commercial business using all third-party managers. Mm-hmm. And we followed that model for many years. When we got more focused or got more density built and starting to be occupied here, it was clear that there was a better way to do it. And the, uh, we started three different management companies as subsidiaries of the public company all in the same year and during the pandemic. And so we have commercial, residential, and parking. And the objective is, the reason we did that was to enhance the experience for the users of the buildings and the visitors of these projects. How'd you find the talent? We attracted people from some of the bigger companies. And so it's been, with the exception of the parking, the office, the office and retail is managed by a lady that was with Tishman for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, residential group is managed by a fellow that was with um, Graystar and another big company for many years. And the parking we did organically. Mm-hmm. Parking started as a just as an initiative to create a better experience for the garages that we own. But when it decided that it had, when it was clear that they had their arms around that and had control of it, we encouraged them to go do third-party business. Now it's called ParkX Management. They have something in the 30s, uh, 32 sites or something like that. About a third of them are Comstock-owned garages, the rest of them are Folger Pratt, Vicki Davis, 
I forget all the customers they have, but they've got twice as many third-party deals now. They're in all three of the jurisdictions around D.C., downtown and, and Maryland and Virginia. And they, and they are the group within our organization. They're the ones that do the third-party business. The residential group is focused on our properties and the commercial group is focused on our properties for Interesting. now. So they're trying to compete with Colonial and, yeah. and PMI. And, and, they've, and they've attracted people from some of those bigger companies. And, the, and they do, they've done a great job. They have, um, they have people calling asking if, they'll, if they would bid on their projects now as opposed to just relying on out on business development efforts. So when you hire people, what characteristics you you seek, Chris? Yeah. Experience and knowledge and a commitment to work hard. And we are a we are lean by comparison to some of our peers. We don't have multiple layers of, of management. And the so everybody has to be willing to work. We don't hire chieftains. We don't hire people that require a dozen people to come with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hire people that know how to get the job done and can be good leaders. That's great. What person or people have stood out to you as inspirations and why? Certainly Dwight, and not only an inspiration, but a mentor. Mm-hmm. In the you know, as you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up with my mom and I learned a, a lot about, I could see what I didn't want to be in the family structure I had and as a father and as a uh, business person. The, um, and Dwight was completely opposite from what, what I was used to being around. And so he's been a mentor from day one. He's been a partner for 20 years and has been uh, an advisor all the way along the way for everything we've done, almost everything. And, the, and I can honest, honestly say that you know, when I didn't take his advice, I usually wished I had later. <laughs> I had one experience with Dwight, and I was in, the, in 2000. I was marketing South Riding, a big subdivision yeah. out in Loudoun County, and I came to him after with that you know, Trafalgar Homes, which was a British company mm-hmm. selling it at the time. And so I came and sat with him. He said, "You know, John, we got out of the land business about 10 years ago." I said, "I'm not going to own any more land." Just not my cup of tea. Yeah. I said, we'll buy lots from you there, but not gonna, not gonna buy land. But it was an interesting experience. He told me why. And I said, yeah, I, I get it. I understand. It was a tough time. And even he struggled like you did at that time. Yeah. As that I was tough on, on most everybody in our business. And yeah. you know, the asset light, debt light model is what we have here now for our public company. The the same concept that you just described let somebody else own the land and do the do the home building and sales on an as-needed basis so basically you you turn yourself from a home builder to a service company absolutely is what you've done 
That's what it is. It's not a real estate holding company at all. There are no assets, no real estate assets that are owned in the public company. Mm-hmm. We co-invest in them, so there's right. sliver interests. Right. We have we bought a building, the Hartford building in Clarendon from I forget who owned it, a group out of Chicago when we bought it. We bought it in 2019 on literally on New Year's Eve of 2019 before the pandemic was here and it was it was a partnership we started it as a partnership between the private company and the public company but we were negotiating with a group out of California to be the equity partner in that building a group called uh, Divco or yes. Divco West mm-hmm. and they turned out to be great partners they closed on that deal with us in March or April uh, and became our partner in that deal March or April of 2020 right as the pandemic, pandemic was unfolding yeah. in, in the newspapers every day and have and have continued to be good partners Who are your and, tenants in the building AECOM is the anchor okay. and they have much of the building that's their headquarters mm-hmm. I, I think regionally yeah, yeah. So they were there when we bought it we had to restructure a couple of the leases there with tenants that were either downsizing or upsizing and and it has been it's been a pretty it's performed well the whole time uh, you're fortunate <laughs> it's yeah there's a building across the street that's not has not been so lucky yeah office has been tough no question about it um, but CHCI the public company ends up in the deals that we do with institutions it ends up owning a sliver either 3 or 5% of the mm-hmm. deals so we don't have impairment risk we don't have um, in any meaningful write downs that we have to worry about in the public company so in, and we have no debt in structuring all this you had to have some good attorneys or somebody at least business advisors to be able to come up because I mean, it's it's pretty unique what you've done. I, mean, I don't know any other company that's done quite what you've done. Well, as I mentioned, you know, Joe Squarey that uh, was here, he left during the pandemic uh, after we had accomplished the objective. Uh, he was very bright and he was very helpful in, in getting it going. Uh, our general counsel, Jubal Thompson, has been here for 20 years. So he's been through the through the cycles with me, uh, both of the, no, not the first one. Uh, he came after um, the early 90s crisis, but he's been through it all since then, since 95 or six, something like that. And we have, we have other good, other people that are here. Are, this is not, this is not a hierarchy of, you know, like, some of our peers. This company is, we're, we've got six or eight key people as the managers, and we all work together to accomplish a common goal. But it just, it, it obviously needed creative vision to be able to put this together the way you did, because to have an, the integration of public and private enterprises like this to work, you know, interchangeably is an interesting yeah. It's an interesting array of structure here. You know, it is. I still wear two hats yep. because 
of the ownership of the of the we call it the anchor portfolio. Mm-hmm. The anchor portfolio is roughly at full build out. It would be about ten million square feet. Uh, there's three or four million square feet that's built, and uh, the rest of it's either under development or uh, in our pipeline, like the stuff across the street, that mm-hmm. the new density over there on the other side of the highway is pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, it's a, it's sometimes complicated in figuring out how to make sure that you know, we're not running afoul of any expectations of the investors of the public company or the private company, but the it's pretty clean operation. So are you, you mentioned the parking is the only management entity within the public company that is doing third-party work? Are you looking at third-party work for your, for your operating company outside of your development activities? I think not? we will. I think it would be reasonable to expect that the public company branches has its other two subsidiaries branch out as well. And the, the way I would approach it is probably on a smaller scale than what the parking company is doing. Mm-hmm. The the barrier to entry in that business is much lower than you know, the office world. And the we have done third-party work in the office space under our commercial management group. The, but a lot of times that third-party work is not forever. You know, it's right. you know, for something happened, somebody's bought a building, now they lose a tenant or something and they need someone to come in and help them figure out what to do. So we've done that kind of work, but we don't, uh, it's different than the parking garage work because the parking garages, once you have that arrangement, as long as you do your job, there's very little reason for the property owner to want to make a change unless the building is sold. And the intensity of management is a whole lot different than parking businesses and apartments. That is the parking and, well, they do parking and security. And the, both of those industry segments are very high turnover typically. And they are, because it's just that kind of business. And so, uh, managing the flow of people in and out and training them is something that the managers have to focus on every day. So ESG is important today with every real estate operator. How is Comstock implemented in sustainability programs? Now we talked about the carbon cure. Right. How else are you looking at that? We are, we have a, a library of stuff that we do. The, all of our buildings that were built new are silver or gold. And all of the older buildings that we bought, we are taking through the process of making them at least silver. Mm-hmm. And so it's a and it so it's it's expanding our footprint of what is environmentally conscious is expanding every year or Every six months or so, we get another of the older buildings brought up to par. And, but if 
you know, that carbon cure discussion, you know, what I left out is the, I saw a report in some industry report that was, okay, sure. I saw an industry report that said the number of buildings projected to be added to the whole planet overall are over the next 40 years. It would be like adding a Manhattan every quarter. <laughs> and so imagine how much difference could be made if everybody was doing enough to minimize the impact on the environment. And carbon cure is just one of the big, the big ones. So now shift to personal. Sorry. So what are, what are your life priorities among family, work, and giving back? We have, Tracy and I have been married 30-some years. In, we got married in 86, so closing in on 40 years. We had four children, and then we adopted four children. Wow. So we have eight kids ranging from eight years old to 35. And they, the four adoptees are from other countries. Uh, what, and, what motivated you to do that? Um, you know, she, you know, when, when a couple starts talking about marriage, you, you inevitably talk about what, how many kids you want to have. Mm-hmm. And, the, and she told me once, I remember her saying, I want to have a bunch of kids and then adopt a bunch of kids. And that's what we've done. And so it was, was it was a comment. It wasn't a specific plan, but it became a, uh, a specific plan over the years. And so it started with a baby we adopted from Korea with uh, Maddie, who was, we were introduced to the program by our next door neighbor. Uh, which was Bill Kent's wife. Do you know Bill Kent? Know Bill. So yeah. Bill and Bill was our next door neighbor in Great Falls, and uh, they had two adopted daughters from Korea that were the same age as our some of our first four. And so they they introduced us to the program. Mrs. Kent actually brought. She was the the ambassador, they called them ambassadors. They would send them over to Korea to bring babies back for people that didn't have the the ability or the time to make that trip because you had to go and stay for a week. And it, it's a complicated process. So they that's how Maddie arrived. And they it was before 2001. So... All the families, there was maybe 20 babies that came all at once on a, to this area. And the gate, you just went to the airport back then and you could go walk to any gate you wanted to, to meet somebody at. And so they all came off the plane at the same time. All from South Korea. All from South Korea. Mm-hmm. And so then... And a few years later, we decided we wanted to adopt again, and we went back to the same agency and said, we're ready to do it again. And they said, well, you've aged out for the Korean program. I think that meant we were 45 or something at the time, or I was. So we couldn't go back to the Korean program. And they told us about the Ethiopian program and that had just opened up. 
and there wasn't very many babies uh, coming from Ethiopia, but we were able to to adopt one from from there in 2007. Yeah, 2007, and Haley is. 15 now and learning to drive which is a challenge <laughs> has been a challenge for me for all of the kids but uh, that's just part of the job and then we a few years later let's see she's 15 uh, the next youngest that's them in the middle of the of the wall there uh, the next one the next two came from Marshall Islands and uh, that was the result of Tracy becoming a member of the board of the Congressional Coalition for International Adoption, which was established by um, Senator Land, Landau and, uh, from New Orleans. And the mission was to break down the barriers that made it easier for babies to get into America, which was, you know, bureaucracy stuff. And uh, they did a good job with it. And so in any event, uh, that led to a meeting with a, a different agency that was involved in a, a then another new program had opened up that would allow babies from Marshall Islands to come here. And so Mateo came in, let's see, 2013. Marshall Islands are in the Pacific, are they not? South Pacific. It's part of the Australian continent. Okay. So it is 200 islands or something like that, many of which are uninhabited, but it's where we did our nuclear testing. And the, in the, Post World War North II. North of Australia, or it is north of north so of Australia, close to uh, Indonesia. Then it's like I that think way. so. Yeah, okay. uh, it's a six-hour flight from Honolulu. Uh, you fly from here, you fly to Honolulu, you get on another plane, and, and six hours later you land on an atoll, which is right. these these rims of these volcanoes yeah. that have sunken into the sea over sure. the years, and. Mateo was born on the capital city island, Majuro. 50,000 people in the whole country, about 30,000 of them live in, in Majuro. And what's the ethnicity there? Is it from Indonesia? Poly- what is it? What's the Polynesian. Polynesia. Okay. And so they call them Pacific Islanders. Sure. There's it's actually a, right. a race in the uh, on the list of races that yeah. you have to pick when you fill out forms. Right. Uh, and so uh, we had to go there. We both had to go. That was the only way to adopt a baby from there. And we went there with the expectation that it would be a couple of weeks. And I think three weeks was what they estimated. We go the day we got there, we we arrive at this hotel, which was kind of like a red roof in place, and the and he's waiting for us. the The birth mother brought him to, and she was sitting in the lobby when we walked in with the baby, and she handed her him to Tracy, and and the next day we went to court and finalized the adoption, 
But then the, the waiting period was a result of America's embassy being more like a consulate. It wasn't a full uh, operation. Isn't it a colony of the United States? Marshall? It was until 35 years ago oh, or something okay. like uh-huh. that. They, want, they were given their independence in, I guess, in the 80s or 90s or something. Mm-hmm. And, but they survive on their budget. I remember learning about it when we were considering this and, and going there. I did a lot of reading about Marshall Islands. It's a, it's a tragedy what has happened there uh, because of the nuclear uh, testing and the, you know, the cancers and, and all kinds of things. But the, you had to go to court and then you had to wait for the uh, paperwork to be processed to take the baby out of the country. And so that took more like four weeks. And so after a week, we traveled in, as a group. I had Tracy and I were there and our two teenagers or preteens at the time were there. And after about a week, that was Noah and Maddie. We left, and Tracy stayed. Oh, Haley was there, too, the, the Ethiopian adoptee. And Tracy and Haley stayed there and waited out the, the paperwork, which, as I recall, they said, the reason it's going to take so long is we can't go every day to the Philippines. The embassy in the Philippines does the full-blown paperwork. And so we send it by courier to the Philippines, and we wait till they get around to coming back. So they can't guarantee it's three weeks or it could be six weeks. And some of the other families we met that were going through the process, they were there for a full six weeks before they were able to get their paperwork and leave. So it was um, quite an experience. The, because it's a atoll, the islands are basically slivers of land. And the Majuro Island was 30 miles long or around and 600 feet at its widest point, which was where the airport was. So if you went from, you'd land in a 707, I think it was. And they, and literally when you're landing, you're wondering Where's the land? (laughs) All you can see is water from the sides of the airplane because the runway takes up most of the width of the of the island. It's like one of the Bahamas. Yeah, and but at the even after nine eleven, the security uh, it was not there, and and in fact, to go from one end of the island to the other, you have to drive through the airport along the, uh, really the outskirts yeah. of the of the runway because right. it's just one runway it. Yeah. it was fascinating yeah. so the the fourth adoptee our number eight which I call Ocho but his name's Kai and he reminds me of that most of the time when he hears me call him Ocho he the mother came to America to have the baby so we picked him up in Arkansas what's what's his heritage? He's Marshallese as well. Also Marshall. Okay, interesting. Wow, that's quite a story. It's a busy house. You have a lively household. <laughs> it's and very you have busy. grandchildren now with your old Two. boys? Oh, well, that's great. And the older boys used to say to me, 
You know, every time I come back from school, you guys have adopted another baby. And I would tell them, man, we're going to keep doing it until you guys start having kids. And they just started. Our number three son has two babies. Well, Thanksgiving dinner at your house must be fun. It's very busy. Every dinner is. <laughs> it's, um, but when everybody comes together, that's great. That's exciting. So what about giving back? Do you get involved in any charities at all? We have done a lot of things over the years. Boys and Girls Club, most recently in D.C. Jim mm-hmm. Davis got me involved with them. Good. Uh, but we've done a variety of, trying to think of them all. There's one, of, I forget the name of it, but there was one involved in adoption, too, I would imagine. Well, the coalition that Tracy was on the board of was very active. Uh, child health. Are you familiar with that? No. Uh, they were... So everything we've done has been focused on um, groups that are um, helping people and kids and, and mothers in need. And that's it's great. just our, our preference. Mm-hmm. And what about education with children? I mean, do you, how do you you'd like to go to public route or parochial? Or what we went public all the way except for we had two that went to the lab school in Washington. We had one that went to Gonzaga and the one that went to Madeira. And, but they've all been in public school at one point or another and, until the pandemic hit. And then we moved the three youngest to Catholic. And it was primarily because they promised to be open. And they stayed open the whole time. And amazingly, you know, even in 2020, when it was still, you know, everybody was hearing, yeah. if you touch the wrong doorknob, you're going to die tomorrow. The uh, nobody got sick. It, they had they oh, figured out how to protect the kids and the teachers, and wow. uh, it was a really good experience. So we just stayed. So, what were your biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events in your career? Would you say? The losses are the easy ones. In 1990, we had a subdivision in development at Tyson's Corner by the McDonald's. It was a big site. I'd spent years assembling the property and taking it through zoning. And FIREA was passed, and they, it was Sovereign Bank at the time. And I got a call from the relationship manager and he said, you know, unless you can come up with $5 million of equity in 30 days, we're going to have to foreclose on the property. Mm. And, and he explained you know, this fire law that had been passed and there, and that w- triggered all of the other defaults. Earlier I said, one day I woke up with 30 or $40 million worth of default defaulted debt uh, that was triggered by sovereign uh, calling us in default because I didn't have the equity to to meet that demand in in that kind of a time frame and so uh, that's how that whole process of working yeah. with the lenders started biggest win is probably the RFP with Fairfax County uh, because it has been transformative for Comstock in, in many ways. 
and been and really been a pleasure to work with them. It really has been uh, a win both as a business and as an individual, just being able to get to know some of the people that actually make the county operate. That's that's a testimony. That's great because it's unusual to have really good, effective public-private partnerships. Sometimes, yeah, it's a it, you know it's it takes effort from both sides. Yes, and Rob Stalzer, when we started this uh, partnership with the county, he came in one day and, and he was very engaged. He said, "I'm going to meet with you every month. I want to stay uh, in touch with what's going on here." And you know, help solve things when it, when issues come up because they will, and they did, and and he did. He was very instrumental in keep in keeping it moving forward. Uh, and things as I I kind of brushed over it, but when when I talked about the hole being dug and we were still designing the buildings, and literally we were designing buildings, column bay by column bay just ahead of Long, uh, Miller and Long Concrete. They were fabulous to work with, but they were so efficient, it was hard for the architecture team and the structural design engineers to keep up with them because of the way it, it all unfolded. And Jim Davis called one day and said, uh, we got a problem. The uh, uh, Miller and Long's running out of work. If we can't get these plans moving forward, uh, get them processed, produced faster, and approved faster by the county. Uh, we're going to have to let them demobilize, and that would be it would have been a huge setback. So we set up a. Uh, we were still in the first building we built. We took some basement space that was unoccupied, set up an office there, and we told the structural engineers and the architects involved. And there were multiple by that point. It was uh, Doug Carter on the garage. It was Hickok Cole on the apartment building that went first. And Thornton Tomasetti and some other engineering company as well. And we put them all in the room and told them, bring your computers. You now are no longer allowed to go to your office. You come here in the morning. <laughs> you leave, stay here all day. Because what was happening was... They would, because of the pace of the of the production, they would be, they'd have to come here, meet with people in the morning, get everybody on the same page, then go back to their, their respective offices, offices yeah. draw drawings. And what was happening was they would get, you know, there would be conflicts for their time and they would end up being distracted. And what was supposed to be turned around the same day would take two or three days. So by putting them all in the same room, it was, it was a sweatshop kind of approach. And we fed them every day, and, and we didn't let them leave. And they, and they got it back on track. It's over, like a technical assistance yeah. panel for ULI. Yeah. Very similar to that. And over a couple yeah. of months, they got it caught up to where yeah. uh, they didn't have to be there every day. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, we would not have met the metro deadline. Well, that's cool. That's exciting. So what was the biggest surprise and most surprising of that in your career? What, what just kind of came out of left field that you never expected? Biggest surprise. I think the biggest surprise was when the, the T 
team leader came in and said, we won the RFP because <laughs> it was such a lark that you know, we were competing against um, the big commercial developers and the, uh, and we had, we had done mixed use. We had done high rise, but on a one-off kind of basis, it was not our, our typical. Did you find out who you were competing against? I remember Vernado was in the mix. I don't remember who else was in the mix though, but yeah. And so I, I'd say that had to be the biggest surprise coupled with, or a similar surprise was when Eric Siegel, as I mentioned, said, you know, this is where the train's going to go, right? There it is. So, That's exciting. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today, Chris? Keep more of what you built. The, um, uh, the combination of the tax treatment of for sale residential as compared to um, commercial tax treatment of commercial property and the, and just the work that goes into it, you know, the effort that goes into creating a 50 unit subdivision or some of the ones we did would be four or 500 units was similar in, in effort to doing a, maybe not in scale, but uh, doing a commercial project. But the, um, then you go and sell them, you give the government half the money and, and you split up what's left and you, and you go look for the next deal. And when we were a private home builder, every deal that we were doing, um, we were all, almost consistently growing throughout those years, except for the really big downturns. So every time you got to the point where you made some money, you were investing it into the next deal. So everything was always at risk. And so you Build to rent wasn't a thing back then, but I, I would have, in retrospect, I would have done more apartments and, and less for sale. Well, it's for wealth building, it certainly makes a whole lot different than just churning inventory. <laughs> well, and as an organization, yes, it's, um, you, we, have, we have some really good people here and they're here because they're part of something exciting yeah. and, and you're growing. Yeah. And, and it's been growing for a long time. So if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Chris? Perseverance. Well, I, we put it on the stone out front. I forget exactly what it says, but it's a Teddy Roosevelt quote. I think, um, and it says something to the effect: if if you believe you believing in yourself is half the battle, or something like that. Mm -hmm. This one is the board said: whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. You're right. Yeah. There you go. That's so. Uh, you know, everything I've done in forty years, every step we've taken as an organization <coughs> has been to do something new and something that you know, a lot of people thought you can't do that. You know, who do you think you are kind of thing? And that was just motivation to make sure that we did it. So that's great. Well, Chris, thank you very much for this really wide ranging conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. John. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So we just listened to Chris Clemente 
who is the founder of Comstock Holdings and his separate company, Comstock Partners, with in partnership with Dwight Shar and maybe a few other people. And as I usually do on my podcast episodes, I'm welcoming a, a postscript guest, and his name is Kevin Dean. Kevin, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, John. Excited to get into this story and this interview. Great. So, Kevin, tell me what your takeaways were from the conversation with, with uh, Chris. Yes. So, I mean, what an incredible story. Just thinking back through, you know, the 80s, uh, going through the 90s, and then taking us to where we're at today and just the evolution of Comstock and just really the multiple businesses and business lines that he's created. I think it's just a great story about entrepreneurship, perseverance, creativity, and just pushing through. Throughout the interview, I was just trying to put myself in Chris's shoes, you know, imagining the various events he went through from moving around five times in a single year with his family to, you know, having to negotiate with banks you know, in in in, t- in a tough financial situation, and then you know coming out the other end and having the huge successes and wins, which we can discuss. So for me, it was just it was just an eye opening story about perseverance in business. Yep. So, and so how do you want to start this? You want to get into you know how he started up and you know kind of what your thought process was there. Yeah. So, you know, I think one thing that kind of struck me was one, how he got into business in the first place. And then two, one of his kind of earliest difficult times he had to deal with in the early nineties and kind of pushing through that. And I know you experienced, you know, you know, you didn't necessarily experience that personally, but you were in the market during that time and active seeing everything going on. I experienced it personally. I went on straight commission at the BF Salt Company to, you know, in mortgage banking, which was hard in that time when there was no capital and nobody doing deals. Although I did work on three shopping center deals and did get them financed at that time. So there was money out there for retail. That was one of the few sectors at the time that was financeable. And the home building sector was completely dead. I thought it was interesting when Chris said that he not only did he have to move five times, but to cover his costs, he had to use 24% credit card debt and ran up, I think he had 10 or 12 credit cards to cover his nut over his family. And he already had two children and he was moving his family around all that. It's like, talk about personal stress. Ooh, that right. is hard. Really it's hard. tough. And I have a lot of respect for anyone who in the midst of a situation like that can, you know, not just give up, right. But also actually push through, remain active. And it sounds like throughout the process, like he almost had to segment it in his mind where he had these, you know, deals he was working on that were very difficult that he had to push through. But I'm sure he was still looking ahead like, Hey, how do I get myself out of this? And, and what's the next project in the pipeline that we can get going? And I think that's a lot, e- it's, it's, it's way easier said than done when you're in the midst of a tough situation to just put one foot in front of the other, right. keep pushing forward and have the intestinal fortitude to say, hey, 
like, I'm going to figure this out and I'm actually going to stay active and I'm going to look for the next opportunity and, and push forward. He refused to file bankruptcy too. And, you know, remember that he, the attorney, he said, you know, his bankers told him, you got to hire an attorney. He said, no, I'm not going to hire an attorney. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to negotiate that directly without counsel. I will not do that. And he held out because, you know, the banks were so busy with everyone negotiating. So he just got put on hold. And so he never had to, uh, you know, recapitulate and go file a chapter and do all that, go through all the legal costs and that. He just held through and was able to come out the other end. By 93, 94, the market started coming back and he, his home building started. And then he, he starts a public company in this window of time, very short window, where a real small enterprise like his could start and go public. And this is a home building company. And they were really small. And he was one, probably one of the smallest public companies. He couldn't even go to the major cities. He had to go to secondary markets to pitch his, you know, his roadshow, which was an interesting play. But he did get it done. And built up to the point and up to 2007 where, uh-oh, you know, they got really wild. He talks about some of the hearing about homo, you know, you know, uh, housewives, you know, I, I just bought two. I want to buy two more of your, of your homes. Uh-oh, wait a minute. You know, people like this are buying. We might be in for trouble here. So. Right. And and then from there, John, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, growing out of that situation and then kind of pushing through, you know, the financial crisis and, and where that landed Comstock. Curious like, right. thoughts on, on that period of, of Chris's career. Well, going through the, the 07, 08, 09 crisis, they had to repivot everything. So they had to step back. He, his company went down, I think, 10 million was the market cap or something at one point, which is pretty damn low for a public company. Mm-hmm. So I'm surprised they didn't go private, but he was able to keep it going. And then they figured out they could start a parking business and they pivoted. They hired a new CFO, he said, from uh, Choice. And they came up with this strategy and they won this RFP with this Fairfax County about that same time. And that helped. You know, winning that RFP gave them a mission to build something. And they, so they took the private com- part, Comstack Partners, which is only investing in private, and they acquired the land and they managed it through that. And then they repivoted their public company to liquidate all their home building activities over time and then pivot into a service business, basically, including this parking management firm that they created. And then all the services they provide to the commercial property. So it's, it's quite a corporate engineering feat, frankly, is what I call it. I mean, it's an amazing transformation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that speaks to one of the themes that kind of runs through this interview is you, you asked him at one point, what was your biggest win? And you also asked him, what was your biggest surprise? Both of which was, you know, winning that RFP with right. Fairfax County, which right. to your point, completely transformed the company, gave them a mission and and really set them on a completely 
new path. And one of the things, you know, we, he also gets into a little bit about the Ashburn project and, you know, they, they had this, this project and had no idea that the end of the Metro was actually going to be right at this parcel. At the site. Yeah. And I think it it speaks to, you know, in order to get lucky, you've got to be in the game. And Chris was out there trying to, 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 make opportunities happen and try to try to build a business and taking big swings in the process, not all of which worked out immediately or even at all. But in the end, you know, he ends up with some amazing developments and projects that are huge successes, which he, he wouldn't have been able to do if he hadn't had the failures on the way. I think it's a confluence of a lot of things. The fortune that he had, uh, you know, Loudoun County, of course, being the fastest growing county in the United States, one of them. So he's in that great location and right on the metro station there. Reston Station, because of the success of Reston Town Center, and he talked about it. I mean, Reston Town Center was growing so quickly, they could not even accommodate the demand of the tenancies out there. So he said, we were in a very fortunate position to be able to go for Google and some of these other companies that he talked about to get them to come in. And a lot of it was backfill from Reston Town Center because they just couldn't accommodate those tenancies there. I mean, as, as fast as Boston Properties was building out there, they couldn't build fast enough for, to accommodate it. So basically, they've taken a lot of that overfill, overflow into Reston Station and and really made it happen. And now they're doing all these mixed-use activities, and it's just kind of a one of the fastest-growing mixed-use developments I've ever seen, frankly, of that scale. He said we're much denser, higher, more high-rise, more compact. But based on the amount of density that they have aggregated now on both sides of the toll road, they might be approaching the size of Reston Town Center by the time they're done maybe 15, 20 years out. Because I think they have something like 25 to 30 million square feet of FAR potential mm-hmm. with everything that's all aggregated there. I know at one point he pulled out a map and kind of walked you through the various right. parcels and the, the master plan. Maybe that's a good way to kind of wrap this up just in terms of like, what's what's ahead for you know Chris and his company, Comstock? What were your kind of final takeaways, you know, looking at, at, at what he's done and also what's ahead for Comstock? Well, when I was sitting in his office, which is where we were doing the interview, I was looking out at seeing three cranes on the horizon. The building we were in was where Google is, and it's, he said it's 95% full. And there's one floor, he said, I think it's partially empty. But, you know, the, the apartments are all leased up that they're right there. And then he's got three cranes, including a hotel underway right across the way from there. And he, so he talked about each of the parcels and everything. But what he has there, and I said, other than National Landing and what they're doing, you know, what JBG and Smith is doing, this may be one of the largest potential growth clusters in all of Northern Virginia, maybe with the other exception being the different subdivisions of Tyson's Corner, which have a lot yet to go. But this is certainly as big, if not bigger, than the borough at, at its full build-out. 
which is a huge project in, in that. And then, of course, what Donna Schaefer did at, at City, you know, City Line Properties, they, she had 11 million square feet in her the two parcels. So this is almost three times that size in full build out. So they've got 20 to 25 years of runway ahead of them, I think, at this project, depending on markets, I would think. Right. And I know so that's a, a lot. It's a lot. It was an amazing story. One of my favorite podcasts I've listened to um, and, and interviews that you've done. So appreciate you uh, bringing me on and appreciate you um, kind of getting the story out of Chris. I, I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to touch on. but No, I, I appreciate it, Kevin. Thank you. And listeners, thank you very much for listening uh, to another transformational development situation with, uh, with Chris Clemetti. And in the next two weeks, we'll have uh, another quality guest. In fact, I'm going to give you a sneak preview. It's one of the leading apartment developers in the region, Cody, Toby Bizzuto, is joining me in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned. Thank you for joining me once again on Icons of Serial Real Estate.